will draw your attention. Please open your Bibles, your, your iPhones, your iPads, your eyelids. To John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm going to a very, very, very familiar passage of Scripture today. For most people that have been around church any length of time, but I want to hopefully draw some things from there that maybe, maybe you've not seen or realized. I am going to ask you to do this. How many of you today will be bold enough to say, I'll open my heart to hear what God says to me? Will you do that? This, this is really one of those family kind of messages. I want to speak to us as a house because what I'm sharing with you, I believe, is so instrumental to who God is making the gate church to be. Uh, for, for those of you that I know are sensitive prayer people, uh, my wife and I, along with a lot of people have been sending me emails sensing uh, that God is doing some things very deep in Oklahoma City and that we are on the precipice of a major moment. Uh, actually, some international and nationally known prophets contacted me in the last two weeks and just said, we believe Oklahoma City has been targeted and that the Gate Church has a significant part to play in what God's wanting to do in this next season. So how many of you know when you're not looking for that, you're not expecting that, you just know God's saying, okay, I'm, you're on my radar. How many of you recognize that you're on his radar? And so when those things happen, I just said, Lord, I want you to, I want you to speak to us today. I open my heart to hear and to receive what it is that you may be saying to us and help us to uh, not, only, not only understand the moment, but to engage it. Listen to me closely. If you don't get anything else today, every big moment in your life demands greater focus. Every big moment in your life always demands greater focus. If God presents to you a big moment, a big door, an opportunity, it's always going to require greater focus. I want to say something just before I preach tonight, this morning, too, about one other thing. Friday night, many of us had an opportunity to be with uh, Ashley Neely at his live recording. Come on, somebody just give it up for Ashley. And I know his mom is here. I know some of his family's here. And I know people that were on the recording are here. Mama, Ashley, stand up with your mama. We, everybody needs to know your mama. She's in church today from the Bahamas. We're glad that she's here. I love you. God bless you. Thank you. We're so thrilled that you're here. I know she has to rush back to the Bahamas. So we just wanted to make sure we did that. So as we open our hearts today in this passage of scripture, listen to me closely. I want to share not only what is said, I want to share some things that were not said because some of the things that were not said give us insight into what was said. I mean, even though the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit, this was not written by men. It was written by the Holy Spirit. Men used the pen to remove the words, but the Holy Spirit inspired the words to be written. So the book of John was written several decades after this story took place. This is not like a live on the moment. This is not CNN recording a transcript at the moment. This is John coming back and telling us the story that happened in a part of the time he was with Jesus. And as he tells that story, he remembers some things that didn't happen 
and he can't figure out why they didn't happen. So he puts in the story. These are things that should have happened right here, but we didn't. But I don't know why we didn't. But we understand it was important to the life of the story. So when we get to that part, I'm, I'm going to talk to you and show you about it. Let me set up because I'm not going to read the whole chapter. The story is about Jesus coming to a place. He's on his way back up apparently to Galilee. They've been down in Judea. It's in the southern part of Israel. So they're headed back to Galilee, which is in the north, which is where the first two and a half years of his ministry took place. And on his way back to Galilee from Judea where he was, the Bible says he looks at his disciples, his students, and he says to them, we have needs to go through Samaria. That's a funny statement. But he said, in other words, he's basically saying this, it's not normal for us to go through Samaria. Even though Samaria is closer, it, that was the most direct route. But Jews in those days would walk all the way down to the Jordan Valley and then walk up the valley back to Galilee to keep from going through Samaria. It's like being in a certain part of the city and you go, I'll, I'll go 10 miles out of the way to keep from riding through that neighborhood. And Jesus looks at his disciples who were very Jewish and he says to them, we're, we have a need to go through Samaria. And it's like, they're looking at him like, you must have lost your mind. There's nothing in Samaria because there's a couple of things you need to know. First of all, the tension between Samaritans and Jews was intense. There was incredible dislike, disdain for each other. Uh, most of the Jews would have, would have seen the Samaritans as being half-breeds. Uh, most theologians believe that the Samaritans were a part of the northern tribes that had been lost. In the Old Testament, if you remember, there was, there was 12 tribes originally. But uh, 10 of the northern tribes went to Assyria and got lost. We don't know where they are to this day, really. And two of the tribes lived on. And the, the, the 10 that got lost intermarried with the Assyrians... And most of the Jews believe that's what made up a lot of the Samaritans. They were people that came from mixed backgrounds. They were half-breeds. They were low-lifes. They were uh, trailer trash. I'm trying to think of all the terms we'd use. And Jesus said, boys, we need to go through there. But you don't understand, Jesus. They have drive-by shootings in Samaria. He said, we have needs to go through there. See, there's two times in the Bible the Samaritans are talked about. One of them's right here, and the other one is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? He's telling them that there was a Samaritan that took care of somebody. Now, he's telling the Jewish audience that. So it blows their mind that they even believe there is such a thing as a Good Samaritan. They didn't believe that existed. So Jesus is already outside of their mind. And so he said, we have need. Somebody say, we have need. We have need to go through Samaria. And his need to go through Samaria was twofold. Don't miss this. His need to go through Samaria was, first of all, there was a woman there whose life was messed up, chaotic, and had to learn and find meaning for why she existed. He was trying to help a woman try to find meaning for her own life. That was not the greatest reason for why they went through Samaria. He didn't go through Samaria just for the woman. He primarily went through Samaria, Samaria, watch this, for his disciples. Come on. 
He was not trying to help the woman as much as he's trying to help his own people. Because when he, watch this, when he encountered the woman, he confronted a mindset in them that needed to be changed. Because he understood his mission was the gospel to the ends of the earth. And as long as the people that call themselves the disciples of Christ, Christ's followers, or you could say it this way, as long as his church had a certain mindset, Jesus knew his mission was never going to be accomplished. So in order to accomplish that mission, I got to confront your mindset by taking you through a place you wouldn't normally go. So all of a sudden, Jesus, they go into Samaria. The, the Bible says it's about noontime, so they're, they're in a, a half a day's journey so far has taken place. The disciples, for whatever reason, we don't know, they run an errand on into the village. And Jesus goes out and sets down by a well. It's Jacob's well. It still exists today. It's in the West Bank of, of Israel. He goes out and sets down on that well. And apparently he's thirsty. Because the Bible says at noontime there's a woman that comes to draw water. Now, I've been at that well. If you drop a rock in that well, it takes it a little bit of time before it ever splashes. Because the Bible says, and it is geographically correct, that well is very deep. In fact, it's about 75 or 80 foot to the water in that well. So Jesus is sitting there and a woman comes at noon. Let me tell you how out of characteristic that is. First of all, if you've never been in the Middle East and never watched women who had to carry water from a public well system or in Africa, you've never been there. Women come in the morning, early in the morning to get their water for the whole day. So in fact, it's actually a social event. Ladies come in groups. Men, you ought to help me. It's sort of like going to the bathroom. I've never understood it, but I don't need to. They came to get water in groups. It was a social event. They all talked. They drew water into their water pots. They would then put the water pots on their heads and they'd walk back ever how far it was into the village or into their home and they'd have their water for their day. The very fact that this woman comes at noon is an indication that she's already an outcast. She can't come with the other ladies. They're not having sweet fellowship. I need some sisters to help me. I mean, she was the gal that you didn't want your husband around. So nobody had to say anything to her. The ladies had already given her the cold shoulder. She knew. So she comes in the middle of the day. So here's Jesus. Get the picture. Jesus sitting on a well. She comes up with her water pots. And he says to her, hey, while you're drawing out some water, if you're drawing out some water, would you get me some too? And she says to him, what are you as a Jew doing talking to me, a Samaritan? First of all, you've already crossed one taboo. You've crossed the racial barrier, the ethnic barrier. You're outside your limits, Jesus. This ain't 
our kind of people. I ain't got no help in here, but I'm going to keep preaching. You're talking to folks that ain't our kind of people. Second of all, how is it that you as a man are talking to me as a woman? So her first idea was she may have even thought him to be coming on to her. So he continues this conversation with her. She said, how are you going to drink something you don't even have anything to drink with? He said, well, I'm believing that you're going to help me. But he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I got water that if you drank it, you'd never thirst again. Now that's probably in her mind. Come on, let's get in her mind to begin with. That's a pickup line. But in reality, watch this, in reality, he's saying to her, the issues of your life are not something as tangible as thirst. You have a natural thirst that has to be satisfied, but you've got an internal thirst you've never been able to satisfy. See, there are people that have wondered in here today, you've got all your life together, but internally there are things that are empty that you've never been able to get an answer for. You thought if I got this certain job, I'd fill that void. If I met these certain people, I'd fill this void. If I got married, I'd fill this void. If I, if I earned a certain amount of money, I'd fill this void. And you've got all this stuff you've been drinking, and you're still thirsty. And he's saying to her, the chaos of your life is an internal indicator that you're looking for something beyond where you are. And he says to her, I tell you what, why don't you call your husband and let's have a conversation? She said, I don't have a husband. And then he said, you answered correctly. You told the truth. Shock, a Samaritan told the truth. That's like talking to a drug addict. Whoa, you told the truth. Somebody said to me one time, how, do you, how can you tell if a drug addict is lying to you? If their lips are moving. <laughs> because how many of you know most people that are dealing with all kinds of issues in their life are constantly trying to deceive you to make you believe they're not there? So he says, go get your husband. Tell him to come. She said, I don't have a husband. Jesus, I love this passage. There's several funny things in here. I don't have time to go down. I would, I'd be here all day. But Jesus just goes, uh, you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. She, she just goes, I perceive thou art a prophet. <laughs> How did you figure that out? God, only God could have told you that. I perceive thou art a prophet. And how many of you know at that moment, she shifts. She doesn't want to talk about her husband. She doesn't want to talk about water. She wants to get in a theological argument. Isn't it amazing people that are in the most desperate places in their lives seem to constantly want to argue over religion? Jesus is offering her something to satisfy and she wants to have a debate as to whether or not church should start at 9 or 11. 
Should we sing songs that, out of a hymnal or should we sing them off a screen? See, it's amazing that when you really begin to touch the issues of people's lives, they want to take you down a road that has nothing to do with how to satisfy the issue of their life. And so that moment, Jesus is seeking to let her understand that what the Father's after is not people who have perfection. He's after people that have a right direction. He said, you want to worship in this mountain. Jews say we ought to worship Jerusalem. But the truth is, Father's just looking for people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. They'll just recognize, I can't do this. And I got to get honest about where I'm at. That's where we're going to pick up my text. So we'll begin to read right there. Verse number 27. It says, then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked. If you're writing your Bible, you ought to underline that part right there. No one asked, what do you want and why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water pots, the woman went back into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. And he said to them, I have food to eat you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of whom sent me and to finish his work. Do you have, it? you have a saying, it's four months until the harvest, but I tell you, here it is, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Watch this. Now, several years later, John is writing this passage. He, he now is a part of the group. Please, 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 please don't miss this. He's a part of the group that walks up and finds Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. And he can tell they're in a conversation. And when the disciples arrive, she leaves her water pot. The very thing she was most interested in, getting her water pots full. She left the thing she thought she needed most. Goes back into town. Now, don't, don't, that's not like she went from here to El Reno. It's really like she went from here to Northwest Expressway. The village would have been just down the road. She went down the road, went into the city. Watch this. This woman that nobody had any regard for. Who had this questionable reputation. She goes into the city and says to them, hey, you guys know that knowing a man is not my issue. I'm going to wait on y'all. She came into town and said, hey, guys, listen, you know, knowing about a man, that ain't been my problem. But I met a man. I met a man who spoke to something in me that made something come alive that no other man I ever met has ever made come alive. And I want you to come meet this man that I met. Could it be that he's the Messiah? 
And the Bible says the whole town is coming. Every man's coming because they know what she's been like. Every woman's coming to try to figure out what kind of man could it be. I ain't got no help in here today. Y'all just sort of sanitize the Bible. I'm just trying to read it like it is. Now here's the deal. Here's the deal. He had needs to go through. Why? Because of his disciples. Here comes a woman who nobody would have listened to yesterday. Now everybody's listening to. And she's bringing the whole city to come meet Jesus. And at that point, the disciples having just returned... John realized something. He goes, you know what? We returned. They were having this conversation. She goes to the city and brings back the whole town. But I realize now when I'm writing this story, nobody asked him, Lord, do you need anything? What do you want? Do you know what? I, I've been here since, I don't know, 8, eight something this morning, 8.45. I bet I've been asked 20 times already this morning, Bishop, can I get you anything? You need any water? Somebody brought me juice earlier. Can I get you, do you need anything? Do you need a stool? Do you need a chair? People, con- I, this, one thing about this church is they constantly serve. They ask me, what do, do you need anything? Can I get you anything? Somebody asked me, do I need a drink? I said, no, I'm fine. So they said, do you need tea? I'm like, well, that's a drink. No, I don't need anything. I'm good. I'm good. Good. Thank you. And John said, we walked up on Jesus. And nobody asked him, do you need anything? Do you want anything? He was amazed that they never asked that question. And he said, the second thing we was amazed at is they never asked him, why are you talking to this lady? It was as if they were not paying attention. Because for him as a Jewish man to be talking to a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day was so outside of the context. You talk about get out of the box. He was way out of the box. And John said, but none of us asked him, why are you talking to her? Listen to me, loved ones. If your teacher is ever doing something you don't understand, the first thing you ought to be doing is asking questions. Because the enemy loves to keep people in ignorance. And most of the time we stay in ignorance because we have no pursuit of knowledge. And John said, I come to realize we didn't ask him if he needed anything. Nor did we ask him, why are you doing what you're doing? 
I wonder how much of the church world today spends its life in prayer asking Jesus, do you need anything? What do you need? Or better yet, I wonder how many people look at a nation like ours that's in a disruptive moment and believes that there really is a God in heaven that's greater than Washington, D.C. And maybe ask Jesus, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you stirring the waters of our culture like you are? Why is a man that a year ago everybody would have kept their teenagers from now holding Sunday night church services with a choir and every major news work in America interviewing him named Kanye West and him talking about Jesus is king. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why is Justin Bieber leading worship for Judah Smith in Seattle? And saying, I felt on a stage something when I led worship I never felt when I was an entertainer. But nobody asks questions. We just make judgments. Do you believe Kanye's a Christian? Who, who am I to decide that? So here's my point. John says, we walked up. He's having a conversation. A whole city is showing up. Here's the church. Watch the church. Jesus did this for the disciples, ladies and gentlemen. He didn't do it for the woman. He put them in the middle of an illustrated sermon. Somebody with a questionable reputation now has a whole city turn up. And watch this. When they show up, the disciples are looking at a whole town come. And they look at Jesus and say, Wanna go to Longhorn? You got to be kidding me. You you got to be kidding me. Yeah, yeah. Well, P.F. Chang's? I mean, what? We got to eat, Jesus. It's lunchtime. Who cares if a whole city's getting saved? It's lunchtime. Who cares if I want to radically change your life on a Monday night? It's lunchtime. The 12 apostles. Uh, can we get something to eat? <laughs> Jesus is like, guys, this is why I had to bring you here because you don't get it. You don't get it. He said, I got food that you don't know not of. And I love, God, I love these guys. They are so funny. This is a sitcom. He said, I got food 
you don't know about. And I can't figure out which one it is. It doesn't say, but one of them says, did somebody bring him lunch while we were gone? I mean, that's what they said. Who brought him lunch while we were gone and didn't ask us? I can't believe it. Jesus got somebody to go to Chick-fil-A and didn't even tell us they were going. Now they're ticked. Oh, the whole world's getting saved. Questionable people with reputations are coming to Jesus. People are finding answers for the emptiness of their life. But the church world is, it's not my day to serve. And it's really not convenient because right now it's lunchtime and somebody got invited somewhere I didn't get invited to. And I'm missing the moment. I've actually had people say to us, you know, if you do that, we'll have too many people. Really? At what point do we cross the line that's too many? Because whatever that line is, if you've reached it, then you're going to be very uncomfortable from here out. Because we haven't reached it. Did somebody give him food? And Jesus goes, guys, you are missing the point. He said, let me tell you what my food is. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to finish the work. This is what got their attention. He said, boys, we got work to do. And the work we've got to do is not pontificating spiritual depths and mysteries. In other words, you guys would love to be in an argument with this lady over which mountain we're supposed to worship in. Because you'd like to reveal to her the depths of your incredible revelation and the auspiciousness of your hermeneutic so that you somehow could befuddle the world with all the knowledge that you have. That's the reason some of the people you work with don't want to talk to you about God no more because you've tried to take them so deep, you've tried to correct them before you ever connected with them. Nobody cares about your great revelation. I'm just thirsty. I got something on the inside of me that cannot satisfy me. He said, boys, you missed the point. Listen, he said, my food, my nourishment, what sustains me is to do the will. So there's been a big push in our culture in the last 30 years to discover the will of God. People are saying, I wish I knew the will of God. I don't want to discover the will of God. I want to pray. Y'all pray I know the will of God. No, no, no. The Bible doesn't even really talk about that. The Bible talks about doing the will of God. If you just do what you already know, it'd be amazing what you discover. discover. 
Somebody in here, I wish I could get just a good amen somewhere in this sermon. Amen. You say, well, I don't know. I don't know a lot to do. Well, let me tell you a couple of things in there. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God. To love people. To forgive people. You don't need three prophecies for that. He said, you'd be amazed how much you get nurtured if you just do the will of God and finish the work that he gave you to do. That's a curse word most Christians' lives. Finish the... It's a four-letter word. You can say it. It's okay. You won't go to hell. Work. Work. Jesus is using this woman as an illustration. Reaching a city is work. We believe I can fish for six days, show up here on Sunday and lift the 30-second hallelujah, and somehow the whole world's going to be turned upside down. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not going to happen. If Oklahoma City is going to be reached, if lost people are going to come to Christ, if families are going to be transformed, somebody's going to have to realize that's the work of the kingdom, and I've got to get involved in the work of God. Don't pray for something you're not willing to work for. Shut up. Stop being crazy because you're a hypocrite in the courts of heaven. If I keep praying and prophesying things I'm not willing to put my hand to. I went to Fiji to preach. Jay talked about my singing. I am a very, very famous singer in Fiji. <laughs> if LED flat, I could even sing now. No, I'm just kidding. Listen, I went to Fiji and I gave a prophetic word that a mountain was going to have a major church on it. I prophesied to the mountain. I said, on this mountain, hundreds and thousands of lives will be transformed. Thousands of people will be sent to the world. People will be, will be known all over the world will be known from this mountain. And today, Pastor Sully was here last year, and he told a little bit of the story. This Sunday, while they worshiped, 120,000 people gathered there on that mountain. That church has 120,000 in attendance. Not only that, they just planted their 1,000th church in 30 years in 150 nations of the world with Fijian money. And I prophesied, and I got a text from him. I got, I got an email, not a text. In those days, it was a, a fax, fax machine. I got a fax from him. He said, I want you to come back next year. We're going to break ground on that mountain. They sold us the mountain. The guy wouldn't sell him the mountain. I gave a word. God said, he's going to give you the mountain. And they sold it. 
And I said, uh, okay, I'll check my calendar. So I came and I, I got there and I'll never forget these words. I'll never forget these words as long as I live. I got there and I'm looking. I said, Pastor Suley, uh, have you got everything you need to build the World Harvest Center? He said, uh, I mean, they had just brought in all this heavy equipment sitting everywhere. I mean, heavy equipment, they had to float in from New Zealand because there was nothing in the nation big enough to build this building. I said, do you have everything you need financially to build this building? He said, uh, we don't have anything. I said, well, you just told the people you're starting on Monday. He said, we are. I said, hold on a minute. I said, uh, what, 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 what am I supposed to do? I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, you prophesied it, so you're going to be a part of helping build it. I said, I'm just the prophet. He said, God's not going to let you come to our nation and prophesy something you're unwilling to be a part of. He didn't have to rebuke me. I said, yes, sir. I'm going to be a part. And that Friday morning, in a Friday morning session, I was preaching. I told him, I said, Pastor, I'm not a fundraiser, but I do know God. I preached that Friday morning when I got done. The Lord said, take the offering today for the beginning of the World Harvest Center. I took the offering that morning. People brought money. The average income, $600 a month per family. People brought money for two and a half hours. They stood in line to bring money. They packed bank bags with cash so high it piled up on both sides of the chair I was sitting in. 786,000 U.S. dollars came that morning in a morning offering. And over the next 12, for next 14 months, six and a half million dollars came cash. But God taught me a lesson. You can't pray for something and you can't prophesy something that you're not willing to be a part of. Am I doing okay? I'm almost finished. Listen. I went to... Uh, I went to the eye doctor not long ago. I've, I'm not wearing glasses. So some of you know, years, a couple years ago, I used to wear glasses. I, I went to the eye doctor. And um, if you hadn't been to the eye doctor for a while, let me prepare you for that because that can really be traumatic. <laughs> I mean, when you first get in there, they blind you. Put stuff in your eyes so you can't see. And then they put you on machines and they blow air into it. And I said, whoa, what was that? You should have let me know. Anyway, they were checking for stuff. And, and then they put you on this machine. How many, how many of you, you know what I'm talking about? They put you on this, on this machine and they go, is one better than two? What about two better than three? Is three better than one? And I'm like, are we playing bingo? What are we doing? And finally they come back in. They say, okay, we got you figured out. Got you figured out. I said, okay, I'm glad. What is it? He said, uh, you're nearsighted. I said, no, 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 no. You, you went through all that and you got it all wrong. I don't have a problem. I can, I, can see, I can see the dust on my iPad. I don't have a problem seeing up close. I can't see them. He goes, no, that's what we call it. 
I said to her, I said, you guys amaze me. You know, the medical profession, you are the only guys that name your condition by what you do good. It's like, uh, oh, you broke your arm. Well, your legs work. Yeah, it's wonderful. So if you can only see here, but can't see there, it's called nearsighted. Well, Peter, because he was in this account, Peter picked up on that in his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1. He said this, if you come to a place in your life where you don't add to your faith perseverance and endurance and love and humility, he said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up being a Christian who's nearsighted. Nearsighted. You'll see everything up close but you won't see anything out there. And here's the problem. You never become responsible for anything you can't see. I'm this past week, Kathy's having to serve on jury duty. So I take her downtown. And I'm riding through our city. I do that deliberately various times throughout the year. I ride almost all the time and pray over our city. So because I was downtown, I rode in different parts of our city I hadn't rode in in a while. And I was riding through our city. I parked on the side of the street and wrote notes for the sermon. This, somebody called me and said, where are you at? I said, I'm in my downtown office. They said, I didn't know you had a downtown office. I said, yeah, it's on Hudson. Access is the only place you can stay for two hours without having to pay in the park. So I got this sermon on the cheap. Listen, anyway, here, listen. I'm sitting on the side of the street writing notes. I got a computer out, typing notes. I thought if somebody rides by, they think I work for the CIA. They'll probably wonder, what is the guy in the pickup doing? Typing on a computer with everybody walking around the streets. But I'm sitting there, and I've been riding around the streets, and I'm, my eyes are filled with tears because what I recognized is The Lord said to me, he said, that's the condition of my church. They're nearsighted. They've become blinded by their own crises. They're blinded by it's lunchtime. They're blinded by what appears to be an inconvenience. And I, I've never had this before. I told Kathy, I said, the Lord said to me that you can use this as an illustration. The way you know you are nearsighted. If you want to know if you're a nearsighted Christian or not, here's the first way you judge it. If God answered all of your prayers, would your life change or would the world change? Because if the only thing that changed was your life, then you can tell where you're focused. And he was saying to his disciples, boys, I've got a mission here. And it ain't about you getting lunchtime. And the Lord said to me, sitting on the side of Hudson downtown this past week, he said, my church has to awaken to the fact 
that I put them in the world to be an answer to the world. God didn't fix me just to fix me. He fixed me to make me functional. He loved me so I could love other people. He healed me so I can help heal other people. He blessed us to make us a blessing. But how many of you know it is very easy to get isolated? Come on, just start playing for me. The church doesn't exist for us. Can I get really, really, really bold? This meeting this morning is not for us to come in here and get our weekly fix. This is a place to empower people so that you can do the work that he called you to do. That means this week, somebody ought to know about your faith. You say, oh, we got, we got time. We got four months. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't use your adage of, I can put ministry time off because it's the holidays and I'm busy right now. This is a busy season. He said, no, no, no. Don't say four months. Then I'll focus. He said, open your eyes and see. Is this okay? Listen, I don't want you to forget these four things and I'm done. If we're going to open our eyes and see, we're going to have to learn, first of all, we have to learn to take personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. The church is God's plan A. Ephesians 3.10, he said that through the church, he wants to make known the manifold wisdom of God to powers and principalities all over the world. There is no plan B. I'm going to blow somebody's mind. Christian television will never substitute for people learning to take personal responsibility. I've been on Christian television multiple times for, throughout many years. 90% or more of the people that are watching are Christians. We've been told, well, Christian television is going to win the world of Christ. Do you realize that two and a half billion people don't even have electricity? Much less a television. So what we got is salt, salt in the salt. And the world keeps losing its flavor. That's why a growing church is not an option as long as being lost is a reality. I put it on my social media this week. People are always like, is God watching me? Is God's eyes on me? You know what? I, I know God's watching me. God's eyes are on me. But I don't really believe that's what God fixates on. I know God watches me. His eyes are on me. But you know what I think He really watches? 
I think he really watches lost things. You ever lost something of value? You ever lost something that you paid a lot for? And it was almost as if for the next several days, every time you walked through your house, you looked for it everywhere you went? Why? Because when something's lost, it creates distraction. Your attention goes to what's lost, if it's a value. If you lost a hotel pen that somebody gave you, then you didn't pay attention to it. But if it's a value, it consumed you. I believe with all of my heart, God's teaching us we have to learn to take personal responsibility. Second of all, that means I have to build personal relationships. The sad thing about Christianity in, in, in our culture is that the longer you're a Christian, the less people you know who aren't. So you get further removed from the world you've been called to reach. So our influence becomes less. I want to say something to every, every Christian that works in the, in, in the marketplace. Listen to me. Every person you pass every day is a woman at the well. They may not have had a questionable reputation in their morals, but they got an emptiness they're trying to satisfy. And they're looking for somebody who'll have a conversation with them that'll lead them to water that they'll never thirst again. Remember Zacchaeus? Jesus told Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree. I'm coming to your house today for lunch. Do you know who Zacchaeus was? He was a tax collector. He was a fraud. He was a cheat. He was a thief. Nobody wanted to be around him because nobody trusted him. And Jesus said, I'll go to lunch with you. Some of you are looking for way too many clean people. You say, well, I get uncomfortable around those people. I understand. But here's what Paul said. This is what Paul said 30 plus years after the cross, after the resurrection. See, we know 2 Corinthians 5, 17 where he said, if any man be in Christ, new creation has come. We just don't know what First, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 says that leads us to that. Here's what 1 Corinthians 5, 16 says. I will therefore not regard any man after the flesh. I'm not going to know you after your skin color. I refuse to know you after your reputation. I refuse to know you after your addiction, your habits, your language. Because if any man can be in Christ, new creation has come to him. I stood on a basketball court in Orange, Virginia one day with a boy. They couldn't believe I came to play. He didn't know I was a pastor until the second game after I won. He asked me, what do you do? I said, I'm the preacher at the church up on the hill. 
He said, my name's Denny. I'm 22 years old, 23 years old at the time. He'd actually went to the penitentiary with grown men at 15. Duly addicted, cocaine and alcohol. And in a fit of rage one night, under addiction, his third offense, he raped an 87-year-old woman not knowing what he was doing. Over technicality, he got out of prison. And I said to him, I said, Denny, why don't you come to church Sunday with me? He said, why would you even want a relationship with me? Nobody in town even wants to play basketball with me, and you're inviting me to church. I said, yeah. We got a seat left. Come on. He said, I'll tell you what. I I ain't going to church with a bunch of hypocrites. I said, well, think about this. I'd rather go to church with them than go to hell with them. You go hang out with them one place or another. He said, I ain't never thought about that. We ended up, Kathy and I ended up building a personal relationship with he and his wife. Next thing I know, a few Sundays later, here you come. After worship, it started. Gym shorts, flip-flops, halter t-shirt, tattooed up, brought his girlfriend, halter top, no bra, hot pants. And they walked all the way to the second row. And I could see the saints drawing up. Their hind parts were drawing up. Spirit said to me, he's trying you. And I'm sitting there on the platform and God said to me, people are always more valuable than property. He hadn't desecrated your building. Sin's broken his life. It's what I died for. It's what I died for. A couple weeks later, I gave an altar call and then his wife came to Christ. A few months later, Denny's out of the city in California. An old group finally found him from some drug deals that went bad. And a detective from San Francisco calls me in the middle of the night and says, we have a John Doe who's been stabbed multiple times on the street we searched his pocket. There's only one piece of paper in his pocket. And in his pocket, it says, if anything ever happens to my life, will you call this number and speak to this man? He said, what do you want me to do with this body? And I sent it back to our city. And I stood in a funeral home with a room full of ex-cons, gangbangers, crackheads and said to them he drank water it caused him to never thirst again he never went back to the streets he never went back to drugs his past found him today his wife 
her sister, and their family all still serve God. They all still serve God. Why? I'll tell you why. Because we have to take and build personal relationships with people. And then you got to be willing to tell your personal story. Just your personal story. Listen, listen, listen. I know I've gone long, but let me finish this. Listen. The Bible calls us witnesses. I'm not a prosecutor. I'm afraid many Christians have become prosecutors. We try to bring damning evidence against somebody. God didn't call me to be a prosecutor. He didn't call me to be a judge. He called me to be a witness. And everybody in this room knows that when you sit on the witness stand, they look at you and say, just tell us what you know. Don't tell us what you heard from your auntie and four cousins removed. That's not admissible. We're looking for witnesses. So the blind man said, I don't know how it happened. I just know yesterday I was blind. Today I see. And what happened in the middle was I met this man named Jesus. You have a story. And finally, you got to make a personal invitation. I realize some people are uncomfortable in leading people to Christ. It's okay. Listen. If you're uncomfortable doing it, bring them. I promise you we will. I'll tell you something else. When you leave in just a couple minutes, everybody in the room is going to get some of these. I want you to use them. I'm going to, this, I've never done this in this house, and we'll do it today. There are 52 Sundays in a year. 52. I'm going to ask you for 5% of them. That is three Sundays out of the year at least. You have somebody sitting next to you that doesn't know Christ. I'm not talking about somebody who's just looking for a church home. You bring them all the time. Somebody who doesn't know Christ. This would be a great opportunity. Do you realize that statistics say 82% of the people in America said if I was invited by somebody that I cared about, I'd go to church. 82%. Open your eyes. We live in one of the most religious cities in America. And yet this morning, 70% of our city was not in church anywhere. Still trying to find something to drink that'll satisfy them.
Jesus, thank you today for your amazing grace. Open our eyes. Help us see. In Jesus' name. Everybody stand with me all over the building real quickly. Our prayer teams are coming. I want to ask a question all over the building. If you're here today and you say, Bishop, that's me. I'm like that woman. Man, I've tried everything in the world to satisfy me. I thought if I got a different job, different home, found something different, it would satisfy me. But today I'm empty. My life is full of emptiness. I'm ready today. I'm ready to drink of water that'll never, that'll quench my thirst so I'll never thirst again. All I want to do is pray for you. That's all I want to do. I just want to pray for you. I want to ask God to touch your life right where you are. I may not know your name, but he does. And I want to give him a chance. But the only way I can give him a chance to touch your life is if you give a chance by saying, okay, I'm open. I'm opening the door. Come. I'm going to count to three, and when I do, hands will go up all over this room of people who said today, I, that's me, I need Jesus. I don't, I don't just need another church service. I need that water that'll satisfy my soul. I'm ready today for him to come live in my life. When I get to three, don't, don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. There's going to be a lot of people lift their hands, and we're going to pray all together all over the room. I want you to do it boldly, though. Don't, don't do this. If you know you're thirsty, do this. This is me. One, two, three. Hands go up everywhere, all over the building. Hold them up high. Keep them up. Thank you. 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 God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Come on, church. We need to celebrate today. Church, help me. Would you pray out loud with me, everybody all over the building? Say, Jesus, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you're alive today. I believe you're alive today. And I'm asking you now. And I'm asking you now. Come into my heart. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Come into my life. I'm asking you to let me drink. I'm asking you to let me drink. Of the water that you have. Of the water that you have. So I'll never thirst again. So I'll never thirst again. Today, today I put my confidence, I put my, confidence my, hope, my hope, and my future, and my future in your hands. In your hands. And in the name of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be changed. I'm going to be changed. And I thank you for it. And I thank you for in it. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Let me pray. Father, I pray for people that lifted their hands all over this room. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you'd seal today a decision they made. I thank you that courage and boldness has come into their life for them to be a follower of Christ wherever they go. Lord, there's 25, 30 people at least that lifted their hands all over this building. I'm asking you today to call them by name and let them know you got them. You got them. I pray for us as a church we'd open our eyes, we'd not miss them. Lord, don't let us miss the people in our city that we've been called to reach. And I give you praise for it in Jesus' name.